If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 7 this morning. And if you don't, we're going to have it up on the screen. How many of you were here last week when Summer taught? Somebody came up to me this morning and said, Summer did such a great job, we're a little bit worried about your position with the church. (laughs) All right. She did awesome. She did so, so good. Can we give her a hand? All right, so Matthew chapter seven says this, and this is the parable. Well, you know this one, but we've been doing the parables of Jesus. And as I've tried to explain, as, those, as we've taught through this, we've tried to explain that parables are far more than just us going, oh, that's a neat story. How can I directly and quickly apply it to myself without doing the work? And so I want us to always, when we're coming to reading scripture for ourselves, I want us to have this in our minds, context, 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 context is king. So when you're reading scripture for yourself, you're hearing my voice saying context matters, context matters, linguistic context, the historical context, the contextual context. For us to understand scripture, we have to know the context. We have to say, not just quickly going, well, what does this mean to me? But to really say, what does this mean to the, to, when Jesus said these words, what was he trying to convey? When, when they heard these words, what were they hearing? And so what was going on in the time and what else is there that that we could learn contextually that might inform our understanding of these parables that we're reading? Because I do think it is a mistake when we jump, when we read scripture and we jump immediately to how can I apply this to my life? And I'm not saying that that's not a beautiful journey to take when you read scripture. I do think that when we're reading scripture, there should be an outplay that goes, and then how does this apply to my life? Or how do I submit my life to this scripture? How do I surrender my life to be refined by scripture? But this process through here isn't just going, oh, that's a neat scripture. I'm gonna read myself into it so that I can get the point out of it and apply it to my life, but really going, okay, what does this mean? And what did this mean to them? How do I understand it in their context? That allows me, hopefully, to be able to pull out a principle that is a kingdom principle that I can then apply to my to my life and so you guys have been doing an incredible job as we've journeyed through this and journeyed through the parables of doing that very thing and we have come to understand that parables aren't just these really cool little moral stories that Jesus was telling but Jesus was actually laying out a kingdom reality that was too mind-boggling and too controversial for him to really come out directly and say in the context that he was in and so he began to show it to his followers by telling stories. And he began to rebuke those who were around him who were needing rebukes by telling stories. And instead of directly, instead of always directly coming out and confronting them and causing problems, or as he was trying to keep from doing, of of unintentionally starting an uprising too soon or anything like that, he was telling these stories of kingdom realities. And as I've said before, this is one of the rare, this inductive process, this inductive Bible study process that we're doing, it's pretty rare that you and I can say we have a leg up on understanding what Jesus was saying instead of the people who were right there listening to him. But with the parables, I believe that we do. Why? Because we have the completed story of Jesus to view these stories through. So when we look back, they're in the moment going, 
okay, this is super challenging, or this is really confusing, or I think I get what he's saying, where he said in Summer's passage, was it like, oh, no, it wasn't Summer's passage. It was a different one we were talking about where Jesus is like, do you, he goes on, and he teaches all this story, tells these stories, and he's like, do you guys understand what I'm saying? And they go, yes. And I'm just imagining them like, like, yes, yes, do you understand what I'm saying? And it's so hard for them to comprehend what he was truly saying because they did not know the full ramifications of what was gonna take place on the cross through his death, through his resurrection. We have that viewpoint through which to view these parables and to look at these. So it helps us understand the greater thing that Jesus is saying and doing. And so as we come to these parables, we want to look at it not simply what can we take out of this today? We want to look at this and go, what was Jesus really saying? However, in this particular passage of scripture, I do think that there is a very direct line that doesn't take a lot of contextual, linguistic, historical, cultural hoops to jump through for us to be like, oh, is my life built on sand? Or is it built on the foundation of Jesus? Like, I, I don't know if I need to study the Greek out for you for us to really be able to draw a straight line to go, is your life built on Jesus? Is he the foundation of everything that you are? And you're like, well, but what did they hear him say? No, that's what and so I'm gonna ask you this morning. And that's what I'm gonna ask myself this morning. So let's read these words together in Matthew 7 of Jesus. Uh, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who, builds, who built his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. Then came, the rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. So the main points that I want to grab onto right away is this. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, contextually, what is Jesus talking about these words that he has said? So if we look into scriptural context, and if we overlay the gospels and I tried to draw out a timeline of Jesus and his teaching and where he was and what was going on, this timeline is laid out. And right before he says this, he is saying this to people. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eyes and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, brother, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Who is listening? Religious teachers, religious lawyers, people who are needing to hear this challenge are listening and they're going, okay. His disciples are listening and they're going, okay. And then people who are curious and coming around to follow Jesus are leaning in and going, okay, don't judge or you'll be judged. Don't go try to pull something out of somebody else's eye when you have something in your eye as well. Deal with that before you worry about them. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, 
and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Again, the religious leaders and teachers and lawyers of the day are listening to this and being like, did he just sum it all up in one sentence? Do to others what you would have them do to you. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. Again, as we're reading scripture, let's be careful that we do not eject scripture into the future automatically just because that's what we've been taught. When we read a verse like that and you're always been told, well, this is talking about whether or not you're gonna get into heaven. Remember that Jesus came teaching about the kingdom. The kingdom is here, the kingdom is present, the kingdom is in with, within reach. And so when Jesus talks about entering in, partaking of the kingdom, he is talking about a present reality a life and life to the fullest, John 10, 10. I came that you would have eternal life and make it into heaven. No, I came that you would have life and life to the fullest here and now. Not diminishing the reality of eternal life that is, comes through relationship with Jesus. Not diminishing that reality. All I'm saying is as we are studying scripture, underline it, circle it, put a question mark by it and say, is this talking about eternity and is this talking about heaven or is this talking about kingdom reality now? But don't automatically pitch these types of verses that maybe you've heard taught a certain way into meaning something that maybe contextually it doesn't quite mean. I'm gonna say that too often, but I'm gonna keep saying that to you guys. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Don't judge or you will be judged. How do we judge? We judge by fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. Okay, so contextually you understand. Anyway, there's a shift that takes place in Jesus' teaching right there. We're not gonna dive into it, but he's talking about a future moment when people would say, I did this for you, Jesus. I did this for you, Jesus. I did this for you, Jesus. But your heart was far from me. And so he's challenging them. These are the words that Jesus is speaking before he says this. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So the first main point that I want to talk about, if we're going to say, how are we, how were his followers being built to last? Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice practice. This verse addresses the difference between believing in Jesus and believing Jesus. 
And I think that one of the reasons that we struggle so mightily with discipleship, with health in our, in, our, in our relationship with Jesus is that we settle for believing in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? I believe in Jesus. Awesome. We all believe in Jesus. Do you believe Jesus? Do you believe Jesus enough to take his words and build your life on what he is teaching? Do not judge others. Don't pull that thing out of somebody else's eye when there's something in yours. Do to other people exactly what you want done to you. These are the things that Jesus is teaching us. And we can say, oh, I believe in Jesus, but I don't want to believe Jesus to the point where I actually build my life on what he's teaching. And there's a difference. And I think that the first thing that we recognize here, if we're gonna talk about what does it look like to have a life that is firmly founded on Christ, it is gonna say, I search your scriptures for your words and your teachings, and I reform and refine my life to come under your teaching and to reflect your teaching because I believe you. And if you say do this, I go, I will. And if you say do this, I will. And that's a difference because we can all say, I believe in Jesus. But to really believe him means that we take him at his word and then we build our life on his word. Does that make sense? Those who were listening to him in that context for the most part, they were obviously skeptical. Skeptical. A lot of them were skeptical of his claim to be the Messiah. They were skeptical of his claim to be the son of God. But they were listening and some of them were learning and some of them were committing their life to following the words of Jesus, to following Jesus, but also to following the teachings of Jesus. In John 6, talks about this episode that Jesus had with his disciples and his followers. And he said to them, it says this, John 6, 60, verse 60. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? What did they hear? Jesus had just finished talking to them about his body being broken and his blood being poured out. And he was demonstrating to them. And he was like, if you want eternal life, if you want to follow me, you will have to eat of my body and drink of my blood. And they, and, and they were like, later they go, that... This is weird, guys. Like, this just got super weird. I thought, I thought I signed up for like a revolution and I was pretty sure I was gonna end up with some land and maybe a cool property out of it and, and it was gonna be rad. And now this guy is talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Like, this is weird. This is what they're doing. And, G, and, and, G, and it says, they, on hearing this, the disciples, they, they said, who can accept this? And aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the son of man ascend to where he was before? Like, would that help you? They got to see that. The spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. All of your religious effort. Again, who is he talking to? Who is he, who is he challenging? He's speaking to his disciples and he's telling them there's something supernatural and spiritual that's taking place in this death and resurrection in this communion that he's beginning to teach them about. The spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the spirit and life. The words I have spoken to you are full of the spirit and life. Yet, 
there are some of you who do not believe. From this time on, many of his disciples turned back and they no longer followed him. And he said to his other disciples, you don't want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. They were committing their life to following his words even when they didn't make total sense to them. Where else would we go? We are gaining revelation that you are who you say you are. You are the son of God and your words, your teachings have eternal life. As he said, the words I've spoken to you, they are full of the spirit and life. That is Jesus's declaration about his teachings, about the wisdom, about the truth, about the kingdom that he came, about the gospel that he came to demonstrate. You have the words of eternal life was their response. And so I want us to really understand that the teaching of this verse, of this passage that says, if you are going to have lives that are built on the foundation, it is built on the foundation of these things that I'm teaching you. And so we do well not to just say, I'm gonna build my life on Jesus. Well, what does that mean? Build your life on Jesus. Okay, yay, that sounds awesome. Let's make t-shirts built on Jesus. But what does it really mean? It means I'm gonna search scripture for his words and his teachings. And then I am going to align my life with his teachings, believing that his teachings have eternal life, that have the power of the spirit in them. And as I align my life, as I surrender my life, as I submit my life to Jesus and to his teachings, that I am building my life on a firm foundation that will withstand the storms that come. And that's the second thing that I want us to see or the thing that I want us to see in this passage is just this, the storms will come. Everyone in this room, you're either in a storm or you see a storm coming or you are laying on the beach sprawled out as a storm has just passed over you. Every single person in this room and we need to understand that from this passage, Jesus is saying, the rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew. He didn't say if the rain comes down, if the wind blows, if the streams rise. He said when this happens. There was this man. He built his house on this rock. And when those things took place, his house stood the test. And I know what it feels like to be in a storm. I know what it feels like to be hurting and to feel isolated in it. And you're looking around your life and you're probably feeling alone. Maybe there's internal, maybe there's external accusation because somewhere along the line you were given or you picked up a belief system that said, if I build on the rock of Jesus, the storms won't come or a belief system or a lie that says, if your life were truly surrendered to Jesus, these things wouldn't happen to you. If your life were truly surrendered to Jesus, it will get exponentially easier and smoother and more hashtag blessed. <laughs> if, you really, if you're really following Jesus well, you won't have marital problems to walk through and fight through. You won't have to struggle with your kids and raising them 
or your adult kids going their own way, you won't have that medical diagnosis. You won't have that battle with mental health. You won't have this, you won't have that. There is a teaching out there. There's a lot of teaching out there that gives us the wrong concept that says, if I just followed to the degree that I follow Jesus well, it's to the same degree that I avoid the storms of life. And Jesus says, no, when the rain comes and when the wind blows and when the streams rise, those will push against what you have built. And if it is not built on the foundation of my teachings, Jesus says, it's going to fall apart. But not one of us should feel isolated or guilty or accused for being in a storm. Jesus said the storms would come. And so if we're gonna take encouragement from that, then let it be that we are not alone in that. these storms, these rains, these winds. It is part of the reality of this beautiful and broken and wondrous and wounding life that we have been given. I do not believe that Jesus is teaching us in this parable that building on the foundation of Jesus and living for and with him will bear, won't bear fruit in our life. But it doesn't mean that we should therefore expect a perfect life or an easy life. I do in fact believe that the more that I align my life with Jesus, the more fruitful it will be. And that in that fruitfulness, I will experience the blessing of the Father. I will experience the protection of the Father. But I am not saying that following him perfectly is my guarantee that nothing negative or hard or bad will ever happen to us because we will all be touched by tragedy. We will all be touched by pain. We will all make mistakes. We will all hurt others. We will all be hurt by others. We will all walk through this life imperfectly. The rain will come, the wind will come, and the rivers will rise. But if we believe a false teaching that says that's not the case, we end up with two accusations really quickly, just two simple ones. If, if, if I believe that I can follow Jesus to a degree that my life won't have difficulty, then when I do have difficulty, I'm gonna believe that God has failed me or that God's not good. And so the storm becomes an accusation against God. He's failed, he's not good, and that's not true. God is good before the storm, he's good in the storm, he's good after the storm. But storms are part of this life. And none of us are impervious to them. And you cannot sit in this room you may be sitting in this room feeling isolated because you're in the middle of a storm. You're in the middle of pain. You're in the middle of brokenness. You're in the middle of a diagnosis. You're in the middle of a, of a relationship falling apart. You're walking in from your car and you're going, I don't know why I'm going into this community of people because I'm going through something that is so terrible. And if I had time to hand this microphone around, the gift that I would give to you this morning would be the story of every other person in this room who is going through something terrible, tragic, or challenging, or has been through it. We're either carrying a wound or we're carrying a scar, every single one of us. And when we're carrying wounds, those with scars need to come around and be able to say, I'm with you, I'm for you. Even in this, God is good. Because we have those healed moments to say, he is faithful, he is good. And I don't want the storms in your life to isolate you. And I don't want the storms in your life to become an accusation against God's goodness or against his faithfulness or that he has somehow failed you. The other thing we'll start to believe is that I am doing something wrong and that this is my fault. 
I remember a time when I was in Bible college and um, we were going to, uh, we were doing a little bit of a missions work and we were, we were driving a van full of supplies into, uh, into Mexico and we were on a, on a missions trip. And so anyway, we were driving along and we, we all loaded up the van and we hopped in and it was four or five college students and we were zealous for Jesus, and, um, which is awesome. And, and in our excitement, we're like, we're going to go um, minister to little kids in Tijuana and give them clothes and, and stuffed animals. And so it was, a rad, it was a rad thing we were doing in our, in our zeal. And uh, we hopped in the van and the van wouldn't start. And so we sat there for a moment. And I just remember this moment where one of the girls that was leading, she said, uh, the van won't start. We need to confess our sins and pray because something, we, we, there's sin, something's going on that's causing this thing to happen. And we chuckle, right? But when bad things happen, how quick are we to be like, I think I did something wrong. I think this is my fault. And there is pervasive teaching in Christian culture that's like, if you will just confess more, if you will get all this sin out of your life, things will go smoothly and perfectly. And, and um, so after I rebuked her severely, <laughs> I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. We had a good talk about, about the Father's heart and, and it ended up being a good thing. But I just remember that of like how often and how quickly are we to be like, things are going wrong, I must, I must not be living the right way or doing the right thing. Now, there is some truth to that, right? Because like, you remember, you reap what you sow. Remember that one? You wanna do that message again? No, no, it's a good promise. Remember, you reap what you sow, yeah. But you also reap what you sow. But I don't want that reality to become our first reaction when something happens because we wanna, we wanna default to the, God is faithful, he is good. He told me there would be storms. And so when storms come, I'm not gonna accuse him and I'm not gonna accuse myself. I'm gonna see, is my life able to stand in the midst of this storm? And if it hasn't, then the thing is, what am I gonna do about that? So storms will come. And as I said, if you look around this room, there's not a single life in this room who isn't carrying a wound or a scar. So how do we respond? There's a song I've been listening to. It's called Highlands. I love this. And I'll move on to the next point because I'm already taking way too much time. I will praise him on the mountain. I will praise you when the mountain is in the way. I'll praise you in the valley all the same. No less God within the shadows. No less faithful when the night leads me astray. In the highlands and in the heartache, all the same. I will praise you. I will praise you in the storm. I will praise you when the storm is on the horizon. I will praise you when the storm is surrounding my life. I will praise you after it has passed over it. But I will also look at my life and go, what have I learned from the storm? If everything crashed as that storm came over your life, I wanna say this to you, take heart this morning. He is a rebuilder of all things. And I know I'm telling you, hey, there's storms and we're going through them. Some of us are going through them. Some of us have gone through them. Some of us are in the midst of them. Some of us just went through one and we're turning around and we're like, oh, great, there's another one. So, dang weatherman. But Ryan, but Ryan, you say, what if the storm reveals that I've built my life on sand, meaning that everything fell apart when that trouble came or some of the stuff of my life that my life has been built on has fallen apart? 
I would say that that's a gift, and I don't mean that. I don't mean that to say what has happened to you is a gift. I'm saying that the reality, the, or sorry, the realization that we look at our life and go, some of the places of my life are built on sand. That is a gift moment because Jesus is not saying to us as a distant father who yells rebuke and then says, go fix it. He is a father who comes and says, this is what I want to rebuild with you. That is the gift of a present father who is able to take even the mess of our life and build it into something beautiful when it has come apart. It is an opportunity. When the storm passes over us, it's an opportunity for assessment. It's an opportunity for repentance. This this moment where I can say, I have built my life on the sand of my own wisdom, of my own self-gratification, on my own self-numbing, of my own self Understand, or sorry, of my own understanding, of my own desires, and this is an opportunity to rebuild. God's heart is to rebuild what has been destroyed. And I think of the Old Testament story of Nehemiah, and without going a long way into it, uh, <laughs> Nehemiah tells the story of a remnant of people returning to, to Jerusalem after they had been exiled. And after generations of warnings, God had said to the people of Israel, do not turn from me, do not worship idols, do not go your own way. For generations, they did that. They worshiped idols, they did their own way, they lived selfishly, they lived in indulgence, they did things that God asked them not to do. They did not build their life on the teachings of God. And because of that, in the warnings that came, you will pay a price. There will be a price paid for the way that you are choosing to live your life. And when that price came, they went into exile. The people were taken into the exile and their cities were destroyed, specifically Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, the capital of God's people. And because they didn't heed those warnings, that's what took place. And they fell to invaders. They fell into exile. The nation and the capital fell into ruins. But then God raised up a rebuilder in Nehemiah to lead the people to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls and to rebuild the heart of the people. Psalm 147, two through three says this, the Lord rebuilds Jerusalem. He gathers Israel's exiled people. He heals the brokenhearted and he bandages their wounds. And I want us to just capture the first three words of that verse, the Lord rebuilds. The writer of Psalm 147, looking back on this, te- this history of the, of the people that we're looking at that I'm telling you about from Nehemiah, they look, he looks back over a time when they became captives, they were exiled into Babylon, and for 70 years, they waited for God to show up and to wait, and they waited, and they waited, and they waited for 70 years. Have you ever had a desire in your heart that you prayed for and prayed for, and then you forgot about it? Like 20 years later, I had that happen recently. I prayed for someone, something, prayed for someone, something, prayed for, and then, I, and then it, was, it got to be so long that I just totally stopped. And then after a while, I stopped. And then after a while, I forgot about it. And then God shows up and goes, look, I'm rebuilding something. 20 years later, for 70 years, they waited and they waited and they waited. And for some, it was longer than that with their hearts broken and they were grieving over their circumstances And I believe that you and I can feel so much like this, like the Israelites did, where we're just sort of stuck in the aftermath of the storm, maybe feeling unseen, maybe feeling forgotten, maybe feeling abandoned. And I want you to know that you are not unseen by God. You are not forgotten by God. You are not abandoned by God. He is at work. He is a God who rebuilds. They were in exile because of their choices. 
And you might be saying, hey, I think some of the storms or some of the reason that this, not some of the reasons, some of the storms, some of the reasons that my life didn't last through the storm was because of choices that I made. The Israelites were in that place where they were exiled because of the choices that they made, and yet God was still faithful to say, my promises and my goodness will endure. I will rebuild. God didn't turn his back on them, not once. And I think that's the important lesson that exists in Nehemiah. The rebuilding, it was fueled by repentance, it was fueled by prayer, but it was sustained by a revival of the hearts of the people. If we want to rebuild our lives after a storm has come and we realize that we've built on the sand, it is going to be about a revival of our hearts to say, Jesus, your ways, not mine. I will rebuild, and I know that your heart is to rebuild, but let's not rebuild on my wisdom, on my purposes, on my whatever. Let's rebuild on you and on your teachings. The words that I have spoken to you, Jesus said, they are full of the spirit and of life. You have the words of eternal life, Jesus, and that's what we want to rebuild on. Another song that has been ministering to me over the last couple of years, you guys know this one, uh, it's called Ruins. Um, and I love this heart. I was just thinking about this verse being, or this, word, this song being written in the midst of a storm passing over and a mess being left behind. And he says, I look around and all I see are burning buildings and barren trees and hopelessness is starting to wreak havoc. But Jesus, I know that you see the deepest depths unknown to me. You have planted seeds among the ashes. You rebuild and you restore all that is broken. And the thing that resonates with me in that verse is, or in that, in that verse, I just elevated this song into scripture. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> oh, my theologians and Bible people, we can, you can pull me out behind the church later and we can have a talk. Uh, it's a song verse, that's what I'm saying. I look around and all I see are burning buildings and barren trees and hopelessness is starting to wreak havoc. And I just want to minister to that because I think that is so real of the human condition is that if you're in this place that you're looking around after the storm and you're just feeling like, what is even the point? What's the point of rebuilding? What's the point of picking up and trying to rebuild on Jesus? What, is, what am I gonna do with all of this? And I want you to be encouraged in this moment. I want you to know that it is not your job to rebuild, but it is God who rebuilds. And his heart is to come and meet you in that place. In any part of your life that was built on the sand that has crumbled in the face of the storm, he will rebuild. He has planted seeds among the ashes. I want the worship team to come up and join us up here for a time of worship. The last thing I would encourage you from this scripture is that while we are saying the storms will come, we are saying that God rebuilds if we get hit by a storm and things crumble. The last thing I wanna to say to you just to encourage you on Jesus' teaching is let's not wait for a storm to check the foundation of our lives. So this is a beautiful and powerful invitation to go, wait, I don't have to wait. I don't have to wait for things to fall apart. Holy Spirit is here in this place and the searching of our hearts that he wants to do is not to shame us, 
but to truly say, can I check the foundation of your life? What is your life built on right now? What is your life being built on right now? And if we will be people who are repentant, who are quick to align with his teachings and with his truth, even when we don't see the storm on the horizon, we will do so well on lives that are built to last through whatever comes. Would I rather submit my life to the inspection of God or would I rather rebuild later? Would I rather rebuild in the calm or would I rather rebuild after the storm? And sometimes these calm seasons of our lives are a gift. And I know, like parents, when you finally get your kids to bed, you don't want to do anything. Sometimes that feeling lasts for years. <laughs> but you know that feeling of like, man, finally they're laying down and then Kate and I look at each other and we're like, we've got a lot of stuff that we need to do. And there are nights when we just are like, no, nah, I don't want to do it. And we don't do it. And you know what happens? We have days like today where Kate looks at me and goes, if the outside of our house doesn't get cleaned up today, it's all over for you, man. <laughs> do I want to live out of that response and fear? Or do I want to be able to be like, man, why didn't I just take care of those little things when I had the opportunity to before? Why do I let it all pile up? But it is such in our nature that like when things are settled, when things are calm, we like to rest. But I would say to you, if you're in a season of calm and settledness, could this morning just be an opportunity for you to invite Holy Spirit to say, I'm embracing this season of calm and settledness, but I just want to make sure that my life is being built on you, Jesus, and on your word and on your teachings. And if there's anything that needs to shift, I would rather shift it before the storm than realizing that it all fell apart in the storm. Amen? So as we worship this morning, would you stand with me? I know that was a lot to kind of process, but what I envisioned in my heart was a, worship, a time of worship when we are just shaking off heaviness of the storms when we are having new perspective given to us and also where we are declaring truth, one of the things that we love, one of the reasons that we love worship is that we get to take scriptural truth. We get to write them into a song that we can all sing together, but then we get to declare it together until our hearts and minds and lives come into alignment with it. So that we're not just saying words that sound nice because they rhyme, but what we're really doing is that we are praying through song and we are inviting the Holy Spirit to align and realign our life, to adjust and readjust our life, to look at our foundation and say, this part of your life is built on me and the teachings of, that I've given you. This part of your life is built on selfishness. I'm asking you, can we deal with that today before this falls apart? Or if you're in this place and you are feeling isolated in your storm, I want you to have his presence so powerfully felt tangibly because you're standing with people who are worshiping beside you who have wounds from walking through the storm who would say that he is faithful he is good and he is with you in this because what do we know we know that the storms will come and so how do we face them in fear or with worship do we face them in fear or with prayer do we face them with fear or do we realign our life right now today, building ourselves on the firm foundation of Jesus and his teachings, knowing that when the storm comes, I will still be here worshiping you and celebrating your goodness, even in the pain 
You are not alone in the storm. One, if Jesus is your foundation, he is always there with you. And two, you've got people who are also building right alongside you who are with you in that storm. So let's worship together. Let's cast off heaviness. Let's exchange that spirit of despair and fear and worry as we worship. And let's invite Holy Spirit to realign us and check our foundations and do a deep work in us this morning as we worship. Can we do that? Amen.